You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, 12th February, 2023. The time is now 10, coming up to 10.03. The Weekend World Show is with Arsene Ahmadi, listening on Voice of Islam, on Dab Radio, or mobile online 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Bethel Fatou Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Joining me this morning is our new co-host for the future for future shows as well as a young missionary of the Andhra Muslim community, Mr. Daniel Kalu. Assalamu alaikum and good morning and welcome to the show, Daniel. Welcome, for having me. That's quite okay. Uh, we're looking forward to getting you engaged with the show. Uh, Waleed Saab is not here today, but Waleed will join us back again in the show and then the three of us uh, for information for our listeners, obviously. We'll uh, uh, channel our way through the various topics and discussions that we have on this channel. Uh, a thought that we always begin with, Daniel, uh, in the mornings is, uh, I've taken one from Charles Dickens. No one is useless in this world who enlightens, who lightens the burdens of another. I think in light of what's happening in uh, Turkey and in Syria, uh, we see humanity coming to the fore and how people are desperately trying to help those suffering in that immense disaster. And Charles Dickens is quite right in saying that, that it is the human nature to help others, which is the true value of a human being. Uh, your thoughts on that? Um, absolutely. So my thoughts are in line with the Islamic teaching mm. with regards to this. So in a hadith, we find uh, that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated, whoever would love to be shaded in the shade of Allah, let him help someone in hardship or wave alone. That's an Ibn Majah. Mm. So what we're being told here is that in order to be helped by Allah, we should help his creation, yes. um, other human beings in yeah. this world. And there's another hadith which comes to mind, which might be very appropriate for this specific yeah. um, disaster, yeah. where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, states that um, even removing uh, an obstacle such as a twig from mm. the path... The path of a traveller. Yes, yeah. is, a bl is a blessing. It's a good deed. It's an act of charity. It's an act of charity. Yeah. So... Um, essentially people going to Turkey and helping out and removing the rubble from, mm. you know, on top of people essentially or even just, you know, helping clear the roads and everything. Mm. That's an act of charity. And in fact, Islam is very forward in this and it's very, um, it promotes helping of others. It, I mean, it goes as far as even caring for animals. I think there's one hadith that if you lighten the load of a donkey, yep. it is an act of charity Absolutely. as well. So exactly. it's not just about humanity, yep. it is about all of Allah's creation. Yep. Yep. And and I presume that in this day and age, uh, when we see disasters much quicker than we did in the past, 
um, the heightening of our need to to help others should increase also as well. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and, and that is something innate, isn't it? That is something God has created in us to help others. It's the part of our DNA. Yeah. To, when we do good to someone, we feel good. Yeah, there seems, having, to, there's, there seems to be a biological reward, isn't it, for doing yes, some sort of good. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you're, psychologically, you feel better. Yes. And yeah. if you do something wrong, you carry that on your on your burdens and your and your on your shoulders, so to do good hmm. is part of what God has created, and therefore you see this sort of goodness not just in Islam but in all the religions because all religions come from God originally. Absolutely, anyway. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you very much for sharing those thoughts, Daniel. Uh, so, what have we got on our show this morning, Daniel? So, um, first of all, we will have Azhar Ahmadi Sahib joining us to discuss mm-hmm. some of the top stories and give his opinion on them. Um, he's always giving his op- honest opinions on the story in question, so mm, that'll yeah. be interesting. Uh, he doesn't shy. He, he doesn't shy <laughs> he away. He doesn't no. shy, yeah, no. We like those sort of guests, you know. Of course, yeah, we want confident opinions. <laughs> yeah, you know. we might not agree with everything, but we yeah. like to have honest opinions. Yeah. yeah. So immediately after that, after that uh, we will continue with our Faith in Focus segment of the show. So last show, Walid Saib gave us an introduction about Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the Promised Messiah. So this morning we will give an insight to his claims and his ancestry. Yeah, to see the background of where he comes from so we understand uh, what his claims are. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. The basis of those claims. Uh, this is the aftermath, of course, of uh, the, the stories of various prophets we've been discussing. And we did a very long, nearly two years uh, session on the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right. Uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So now we moved on to the promised messiahs and his claim. Okay. Uh, and what about after the 11 o'clock news? So after 11 o'clock, we will be joined live from Turkey. Mehmet hmm. Onder, the ex-Amir of Turkey Jamaat, will be joining us to share the tragedy that has hit Turkey and the impact this is having there and the efforts of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community over there. Yes, I mean, everyone's helping and uh, for their small token, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community are also very active. There. So he'll, hopefully he'll give us an insight. Yes. Uh, he's been active where the help is needed. So he's just returned to Istanbul this morning, I believe. So ho- hopefully he'll be joining us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have Henry Smith joining us around half past 11. Is that right? Yes, we have. So Henry is a conservative MP from Crawley. And he will tell us what the UK government is doing for the Turkish aid. And also we will ask him some questions about the continued Ahmadiyya persecution in Pakistan. Yes, he's the member of the APPG uh, for Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So he knows uh, what's going on and he's aware of what is happening. So we'll get an insight. Uh, he's been to Pakistan and, and spoken about it there right. as well. So, we, so he'll give us an insight of what's going on. And do we have any sports? Yes, we do. So Shahid Khan, our international sports journalist, will join us and give us the going goings on of the football premiership this week as the race for the top position is getting very tight. Indeed it is. And uh, so lots on the show, as always. Uh, so why not share us uh, share your views or your comments by phoning 0208 687 7878. Sorry, I'll repeat that. 0208 687 7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the weekend world show are those of the individuals and guests and the the, uh, the host as well. The views uh, are shared uh, with everyone on air, and I hope that uh, you will take time to join and give us your views. Right, uh, Daniel, we're going to start with our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. 
Daniel, the Ukraine war is dragging on, and uh, the Al Jazeera is reporting that what can the EU offer to President Zelensky? Uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, Zelensky sorry, is seeking further European support as the war enters its second year. What else did they say? Right, so for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly a year ago, President Volodymyr Zelensky has visited Western and Central Europe. Now, he's using this opportunity to thank European leaders for their support, but has also doubled down on his request for more military assistance. Yes, when he was in the UK, he in the Parliament, he was openly asking for more arms, particularly jet fighters and having had those tanks, etc. So, yeah. uh, so let's see what, what further we know about this story and, and what the solutions are possibly to discuss this and other stories of the week. Is Joining us live from Kent is Azhar Amdi, as we said earlier. Azhar is a regular contributor to, show, uh, to the show, giving us his honest opinions on religion and political news of the week. Assalamu alaikum, Azhar. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. for joining us once again. Um, Thank you very much for having me. No, no, as always, um, we were complimenting that you always give us your honest views, um, and we like honest views, and uh, it makes the topical uh, of the day, the topics of the day, more interesting. Uh, now, the, the war on Ukraine is dragging on, um, and there's no solution in sight as President Zelensky tours Europe for more help. What are, what are the solutions? Is uh, asking for more jets the solution, or is it uh, what sort of help is he looking well, for to find the long-term solution to this? Well, it doesn't seem to be a solution. It just means that the uh, war is uh, uh, prolonged. So I think um, the West has to realize that it's no use just uh, demonizing Putin all the time. Uh, I think we've said uh, before that the West is to blame as well to some extent uh, because NATO, you see, is a nuclear power. And this is the, uh, this is the cry or the plea of uh, Putin that he cannot have uh, um, nuclear weapons on his doorstep. So I think this has to be addressed. Uh, you know, the war is only 7,100 civilian deaths, and uh, the Ukrainian soldiers dead are, according to the estimates, 4,000. I think that's probably an underestimate. And the Russians dead is uh, 500. Um, so the war is uh, is extremely damaging. So I think, and you know, the West is suffering, as you know, we're all suffering, mm. because Russia has enormous um, gas and oil reserves, energy reserves, and uh, we are all an in, inter, we are living in an interdependent world, everyone knows this, global mm. village. Yes. So uh, we are reliant on each other. On each other yeah. Yes, we rely on each other for every, every country has different resources. So we must share them, mm -hmm. and it's no use having sanctions against this country and that country. There's sanctions against Iran, and the people of Iran are suffering. So this weapon which the West uses is a very blunt one and uh, uh, self, uh, what's the word? I mean, they score an all, 
an own goal. Uh, an own goal. I mean, Zelensky, in the foot. Yeah, Zelensky came to Britain first of all the nations because he's getting a lot of support from Britain. Boris Johnson started that and continued with Liz Truss and with Ricky Sunak. And he openly asked for more arms, uh, more rocket power, yeah. etc. He's yeah. going to Europe. Uh, there, he's been more consolatory that he's been thanking them for their support, but not openly asking for weapons. But uh, what, what what should Zelensky be doing? Um, to, well, because the, yes. so, some of the solution to peace, uh, or ending this war rather, lies with him as well. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Predominantly lies with Putin. Uh, but what does Zelensky need to do? Now, you see, his country is uh, embroiled in a war, and obviously he is the main, uh, the Ukraine is, the, uh, is bearing the brunt of the suffering. You know, the 7,100 civilian deaths are all in Ukraine, not in Russia. Mm. So it is his responsibility to negotiate for peace. Uh, I think the war is exactly a year old now because it started February last year or at the end of February. So um, I think the, uh, look, the thing is this, that, as I say, the West has been demonizing Putin, and Putin is a very powerful uh, force. His country is very powerful militarily, politically, and obviously with the energy resources. So you cannot uh, kind of humiliate people. Uh, now, I think there is a solution uh, if people bring their head, knock their heads together, mm -hmm. and which is that uh, Ukraine, uh, the, what, the, uh, this is the only solution I can think of so far, is that Ukraine agrees, well, Russia agrees to let Ukraine join NATO, right? But NATO, on the negotiating table, pledges not to place nuclear arms in Ukraine and never to use them but, in, but what in can, Ukraine against Russia. The, 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 that promise could be difficult because if they do promise something like that and a NATO nation is attacked, uh, then NATO will have to come in and provide all the weapons, including no, no, nuclear. It well, no, because, you see, all the countries in NATO, hmm. now, all the countries which are nuclear-armed in NATO, which is USA, France, Britain, uh, these are the main ones, uh, so they have pledged in the NNPT, which is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, hmm. that they will not spread nuclear arms, that they will work towards uh, disarmament of nuclear weapons. Because, you see, the NNPT is a compromise between those countries which own nuclear weapons and those which do not. Now, for example, Kenya is a sovereign country. Why, can't, why can it not have nuclear weapons? Obviously, nobody wants Kenya or other countries, let's say Italy or Spain, to have nuclear weapons because this just uh, makes the world an unsafer place. So they should renew their pledges, which they have made under NNPT, not to use nuclear weapons and, um, and not to place them in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. 
and and Russia should agree that Ukraine can join um, NATO. Mm. Uh, Russia agrees that Ukraine can join NATO, but on this proviso that there will be no nuclear weapons. So I think this is the only solution. So uh, I cannot so, think of any other. So now remember, the stance of the West is totally hypocritical because mm. remember what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we have to go to first principles. Um, JFK objected to Russia uh, shipping its nuclear weapons to bases in Cuba because they said this is uh, proliferation of mm -hmm. nuclear war or, uh, you know, and they said we cannot have nuclear weapons in our own backyard. And they were ready to embroil the world, to plunge the world into a nu nuclear conflagration uh, if if uh, Russia sent its ships. So uh, I think uh, there are no solutions. Nobody is coming up with solutions. And uh, I think um, you, your program might be congratulated for for producing the first realistic solution of the Ukraine war. Is that right? <laughs> well, <as a> side, <laughs> um, uh, uh, Daniel wants to ask a question. I'd like to challenge yes, sure. that solution, uh, if I may, um, because from my understanding, wasn't it in the 90s where after the collapse of the Soviet Union that um, the EU and NATO in general um, in a way promised or assured Russia that they wouldn't uh, let those countries neighbouring Russia um, immediately um, join NATO. So that was Estonia and Slovakia, Slovenia, all of those countries, the Eastern European countries. So they gave that assurance. So we're talking about a pledge here, right? So how much can we trust this pledge if the West was about to come up with a pledge where eventually all of those countries um, did end up joining NATO and the last one on the list was Ukraine, which they want Ukraine to join as well, or Ukraine wants to join. Mm. So that promise was broken. How much can we trust that promise? Well, obviously, as you say, pledges are not worth the paper they're written on if there's no goodwill. So now the question is this, that um, you are faced with a dilemma that uh, uh, countries should be allowed to join whatever treaties they want to make with other countries, unfortunately military ones as well, and uh, although, uh, as you know, the First World War started because of military alliances, you know, if somebody attacks somebody else and then everyone joins into the fray. So this is the problem with alliances. Alliances we have got to be very careful about. So trade alliances, fine, not a problem. If you want to, you know, um, trade uh, technology or tractors or agriculture, that's fine. But when it comes to military, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's a problem. And, uh, and the, the greater difficulty is imposed by the fact that some of these nuclear, uh, NATO countries are nuclear armed. So this is the crux of the problem. Uh, I don't think people have a problem with conventional arms, fine, because the damage is not uh, is not Armageddon, is not on the level of Armageddon. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, where you have tanks and guns and what have you, so although bombs by air is very bad as well, and there should be a move in the international community to stop all that as well. 
a lot of the uh, uh, what do you call it uncontrolled killing is is done by air traffic air, air, air bombs because they yes. just land on on yes. everyone and anyone yes see what they did in iraq see what they did in uh, uh afghanistan now mm. see what the saudis are doing in uh, yemen yeah it's terrible just as just uh, as uh, dangerous are nuclear weapons, so are uh, carpet bombing, which is just random. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So they should be uh, moved to remove all these uh, uh, massive. And yeah. you know, the Khalifa of the time has always called for an end to the international trade in arms. Mm. This Indeed. is very bad. You know, the Saudi war against Yemen is caused uh, to a large extent by Saudi buying weapons of absolute mass destruction sure. from America and other Western countries and using them against a very poor country mm. like Yemen. So there are a lot of underlying things, but as far as Ukraine is concerned, which you asked me to discuss today, I would say that one solution, face-saving solution, is that Russia agrees, they come to the negotiating table, we want trade, with Russia and Ukraine, they've got a lot of to offer. Russia has got a lot of resource, and uh, Ukraine has got a lot of uh, agriculture and other resources as well. There should be peace between them, uh, not enmity. And uh, one thing could be that uh, nuclear weapons are uh, erased from the equation. I think some of your solutions are uh, very good on paper and easily said, but more difficult to apply, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, and I'm sure Putin would think that would be a waste of a war if he decides that he could allow uh, Ukraine to join NATO. But uh, anyway, a lot more to discuss, and we'll discuss this in future shows. Uh, let's come to another story, as a uh, Persecution of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Pakistan. Uh, let's hear what... Uh, some Indian news channels have, are reporting. Breaking the minarets of the Ahmadi Masjid in uh, Karachi. This, if you recall, is the second incident in just a month. Earlier, the minarets of the Ahmadi Jamaat Khata on the Jamshed Road in Karachi were also demolished. Mob attacks and killings have become a regular affair against the Ahmadiyya community in Pakistan. And the Ahmadiyya Muslim community here, if you recall, has faced consistent discrimination, harassment and attacks since the year 1974, when a constitutional amendment declared them non-Muslims. So this is what's uh, happened recently in uh, Karachi, the des desecration of the Amdiya Muslim mosques uh, in front of the authorities there. Um, this persecution is continuing, is it not, in Pakistan? Azhar? Hello, yes, I think we lost you for a minute. Uh, I don't know if you heard that clip. Uh, yes, yes, I yeah, did. Yeah. So, uh, the, yes. uh, I think you asked me if this persecution of Ahmadis is continuing. I, re I heard the clip. Yes. So, uh, the situation in Pakistan as far as sectarian violence is, uh, is uh, very serious and it is spreading. Uh, so, the destruction of the Ahmadiyya mosques in Karachi is, you know, an absolute assault on freedom of worship and uh, denying people their civil liberties. Uh, and, uh, you know, things can get much worse with killings and all that. Now, so far, we haven't had killings. Uh, so mob violence and sectarian violence and sectarian killings in Pakistan 
is a real issue. If you remember, there was, on the 30th of January, 2023, there was a terrorist attack which killed 101 people in in a Peshawar mosque. Mm. Now, that was not an Ahmadiyya, but what I'm illustrating is that the sectarian situation in Pakistan is extremely serious, and I think the authorities, the government, had better do something about it. Unfortunately, they are not doing anything about it at all. I was going to say, there seems to be no will by the government to do anything about it. No will at all. Yeah, because a lot of this persecution takes place in front of the authorities. Well, uh, I think uh, in the the destruction of Ahmadiyya Mosque in Karachi, there were some police officers involved as well. Mm. Well, they were watching anyway. And uh, the thing is this, that the hate speech is being uh, used by the uh, by the uh, clerics, mm-hmm. you know the Muslim clerics we call them mullahs or Malvis Malvis. It is be, it is it is nothing short of hate speech to stir up the people against uh, other sects, and uh, I'm afraid the Shias are going to be the next target on a very large scale uh, because the blasphemy laws are being expanded. Uh, in Pakistan, and that, that's a very serious move as well. So what is the solution for the Ahmadis to be able to practice their faith? Because what is happening in Pakistan is that uh, history is being rewritten, school books are being rewritten, where any involvement of the Ahmadi Muslim community towards the, the, the creation of Pakistan is being removed from history. There's no mention of people like Jodhri Zafrullah, who was the first foreign minister in school books, and the teaching that Ahmadiyya Muslim community is a new religion altogether. It seems to be what the focus is there. So what? how can we, how can Pakistan overcome this? Because it's not doing them any good because public uh, support for them in this in human rights is uh, fading fast and quick. Yes, of course, uh, the, the human rights situation, the civil liberties situation in Pakistan is very poor as uh, far as Ahmadis are concerned, and it will get even uh, poorer still for the Shias as well. Um, that's my reading of the situation. Hmm. And it all goes back to the, f- you know, the fact is that there must be voices raised. Uh, you know, people in, you know, living in England, for example, there's so many religions here. There are Buddhists, Hindus, there are Muslims, uh, of different uh, sects, there are uh, Christians of various uh, hues. So everyone is living in peace. Nobody is interfering. So there must be some kind of voice, and the religion clerics must be stopped from their hate speech. And in, unless you do that, there's no hope for Pakistan. Is there any sign of the new generation? Because with the social media internet, etc., people, uh, and the, the general uh, fervor in the world of wanting um, rights to people uh, and, and human, human rights and other rights as well is growing yes. everywhere. And the new generation is, is seems to be, the woke generation, as they say, it, seems to be the ones who want this more. So is this happening in Pakistan? Is the new generation going to bring this about? Well, the situation is patchy because if you remember, in uh, in a university, 
they banned the name of Professor Abdul Salam. Uh, I mean, you know, there was an institute in, uh, I think, in Islamabad, Jinnah uh, University, or Qaidi Azam University. They had a the physics center named after uh, Abdul Salam, Professor Abdul Salam. But then that was removed, and another place, another university, the 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 image of Professor Abdul Salam was desecrated, wasn't it? Correct. Yes. So correct. if this is happening in the student um, environment, uh, in the student environment, in the student classes, I'm afraid there's little hope if this is how people are going to grow up. Mm. And uh, you know the TLP and other. Uh, sectarian groups, violent groups, extremist groups, Muslim Sunni groups are very strong at the universities. Mm. So the situation is on a knife edge as far as uh, civil liberties, uh, human rights, uh, religious freedom, uh, the freedom to uh, profess one's faith, the freedom to practice one's faith, the freedom to worship God. These are all under attack in Pakistan. This is the very sorry situation. And, and, and apart from all the benefits that you, all the things that you have mentioned there, at the end of the day, um, this is not helping Pakistan's cause uh, in any way whatsoever because in the light of the world, Pakistan is seen as one of those nations that does not give human rights, uh, and it's to their betterment. And to their advantage, if they if they allow this to happen and not let the clerics' the ideologies infiltrate their politics. Yes, so this is a very sad situation. It is not only the clerics. As you know, there are many politicians hmm. who jump on the bandwagon as well and uh, start uh, blaming Ahmadis for this and that. And uh, uh, so this is a very sorry situation. So the Pakistan is being let down by its religious leaders mm-hmm. and is being let down by its political leaders. Mm, indeed. So, and they are influencing the students, the TLP. There is no attempt to ban them no. or to muffle their voices or to charge them under hate speech. That's what would happen in the West. You know, in the West, we, don't, we used to have blasphemy laws. I think we still do, but they are rather, rather, uh, largely dormant. And now we have hate speech. So anyone trying to incite a mob or trying to hate, uh, incite hatred against a certain sect, even minorities like uh, like Muslims or Jews or Hindus, will be in trouble. You know, they, with, with the law, and they'll be charged. Indeed. Uh, so, but this doesn't happen in Pakistan. In Pakistan, in Pakistan unfortunately, Pakistan. rule of law is not the strongest at the moment, and that needs to be brought in very quickly. As the time is running out, and unfortunately, we can't do the third story today, uh, but inshallah, we'll do that. Uh, and Zakala for joining us and discussing uh, those two very important stories with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, well, As I mentioned, TLP, that is the Tariqe Labak in Pakistan party, uh, and also you mentioned JFK, which is John F. Kennedy, uh, just in case our listeners weren't aware of that. Right, we're going to use uh, go to our next topic um, uh, of the show, which is uh, Faith in Focus, um, and we'll be discussing uh, the claims of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Weekend World on Voice of Islam. We'll start with the verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 62, verses 3 and 4. 
And the translation of those verses are, He it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto him, them his signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom, although they had been before in manifest misguidance. And amongst others, from among them who had not yet joined them, he is mighty the wise. Uh, Daniel, um, this verse of the Holy Quran, um, when we understand the history behind this, uh, gives a lot of explanations about the future because it talks about and among others who from among them who have not yet joined them and uh, can you enlighten our listeners uh, about why this this verse is so important this is from surah juma verses two to three uh, three to four sorry yes so as you mentioned um, the history or the context of verses is extremely important right we can't always just look at um, a verse of the Holy Quran at face value. We have to sometimes look at the history, the context, mm. uh, the verse um, preceding it, the, the verse succeeding it, mm. um, in order to truly understand what um, God Almighty is trying to tell us in that verse. Can I just interject there very quickly, just for, just for our sake of our listeners? The reason for that is that you can't have a full historical record in a revealed book because that book will be so thick probably many sets of encyclopedias to incorporate everything. So what you have is the principal teachings in the in, in the scriptures and then recorded history tells us what is behind all that. Exactly, uh, because yeah. the purpose of yeah. the Holy Quran is not to be uh, a, a book of history. Yeah, exactly. right? It's not a historical yeah. record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so carrying on from that, so one of the best ways to understand what um, certain verses of the Holy Quran mean or essentially the best way, is to see either how the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, applied that verse or how he explained that verse. Correct. So with this verse in question, especially the part, and among others from among them who have not yet joined them, mm. we find in um, traditions that when this was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, he was surrounded by a few companions of his and they asked him that who is this verse referring to? They were, you know, interested. And he was quiet at first and they asked again and he was quiet again. And then they asked one more time. And then amongst those companions, there was a companion by the name of Salman Farsi, um, Salman the Persian. Uh, again, small interjection. When the Holy Prophet would not say things of his own accord, he would only say things what was told to him by God Almighty. And when this question was asked twice, three times, he didn't reply only because he himself had not been told by God Almighty until it was explained to him, only then did he respond. Exactly, um, because we find that concept that he only says whatever you know God Almighty mm. instructs him to or inspires him to say in another chapter, Surah Najm, 
um, where it says in huwa illa wahyun yuha that you know um, it, whatever it says is just what is revealed to him essentially yeah, right correct. so that's what happened in this instance and as I was saying so uh, Salman Farsi the Persian he was sitting there um, may Allah be pleased with him he was sitting there so the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he put his hand on his shoulder on Hazrat Salman's shoulder and he said so this is a tradition we find in um, Sahih Bukhari a collection of a hadith um, where he stated that if faith were to ascend to the Pleiades which is a star constellation mm. very very far away mm. uh, meaning that if faith had you know disappeared left people, on earth basically literally yeah, yeah, yeah literally. people were not following God at all like, pretty much yeah, yeah. yeah it had left their hearts yeah. essentially right yeah. um, then a person or people from um, amongst his people so Salman the Salman, Persian's pe- yeah. people would bring it back, mm. right? Um, and that is actually the basis of uh, the advent of the promised Messiah, um, peace be upon him, that he would essentially, because what was the mission of the promised Messiah and the Imam Mahdi? It was to bring faith back, back. into yeah. the hearts of people. Into the hearts of people, which is what you were explaining, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that essentially just described that the mm. Messiah, this is one, um, this was an indication for mm. his followers, for his ummah, for his nation. Um, to understand that the Messiah and the Mahdi would be from amongst right. um, the Persians. So, so Salman Farsi, can you explain what his uh, ancestry is? So where is he from? Why is he called Salman Farsi, for example? And why is that important? Yes, so the reason he's called Salman Farsi is because um, unlike most companions at the time of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, so most companions were Arabs, right? Mm. Um, and they were from the Arabian Peninsula, mainly. But there were a handful of companions, such as um, we have Bilal ibn Rabi. He was the Abyssinian um, ex-slave. Mm-hmm. We have from uh, from uh, Abyssinia, yeah. from yeah, Abyssinia, yeah, which is today's Ethiopia. Yeah. Ethiopia, exactly. Yeah, um, we have Hazrat Soheb Rumi, who was of he was from the Roman area, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then we have Hazrat Salman Farsi as well. These are the three prominent non-Arab companions, right? Mm. And as a Salman Farsi, essentially, he was a Persian. Um, he, when he was very young, um, he was taken away from his hometown um, and enslaved and everything. And eventually, he just ended up in um, the Hijaz area, where he was uh, eventually freed and he joined Islam as a Muslim. So he was, by origin, by ethnicity, he was a Persian, right. living in Arabia. He yeah. could speak Arabic, but he still he was Persian enough to um, to contribute, for example, in the Battle of the Ditch with a Persian military tactic where mm. digging that whole ditch in front of uh, Medina so mm. that the uh, opponents couldn't come over, that was a Persian military tactic. So he was able to contribute in that way from his The Holy Prophet heritage. had asked his companions to give advice and Salman Farsi gave that advice yes. that we used to dig ditch and he took that uh, advice and, and, and did exactly that. Exactly. So, so it, it shows you that he is from uh, of Persian descent. Uh, hence his name, and that was a common thing that people were named after their origins as well. Uh, it's still used in the subcontinent sometimes. Uh, like Mr. Glamour is known as Mr. Glamour, you know, yeah. and that's quite good. Old Sialkoti or things like this. We have a pet in our community. Exactly. So, how, so how, uh, so has Mr. Glamour? May Allah be pleased with him. Has he got a linkage with Persian? Because if he is, claims to be the reformer, uh, 
the promised one, then he must have some linkage there. Can you explain what his family heritage is then? Of course. So despite of the fact that Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was born in Gadian, India, mm. um, in the subcontinent, his ethnicity or his his ancestry um, takes us all the way to Persia. Mm. The reason being that he descends from a clan by the name of Burlas. And Burlas was essentially an uncle of uh, Temur or Tamilain, um, the the Central Asian or the Persian conqueror, right. um, who was a descendant of Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so this... Burlas, you know, he his progeny, um, they became known as the clan of Burlas. And one of his descendants, Mirza Hadibig, uh, he decided to move uh, w- along with his entire family and, um, you know, household members and everyone. Um, there were about 200 people in total to emigrate from uh, Persia to India at the time. And that, that was around the time when Emperor Babur, the first emperor of the Mughal Empire, had just um, also em- essentially immigrated from, uh, well, he, he was born in Fergana mm. uh, in modern day Uzbekistan, and he you know lost that kingdom and everything, and then he went to India to conquer India. Right. Okay. So in India, a new kind of Indo-Persian society was being um, created, created yeah. right, mm-hmm. through Babur. And what... Mirza Hadi Beg, the ancestor of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed did, was he settled down within that empire. Right. And he was given a, a large um, area of land with lots of villages mm-hmm. to um, settle into. Right. And look so after. his lineage comes from the Persians. Then. From so the Persians. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, my children are born here. Uh, I am born in Kenya as well, my parents. But their parents, my grandfathers, were born in India. In right? India, yeah. So when my kids tell who they are, yeah. They say that they are British, but their lineage comes from India. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that carries on, and, and that is what is being applied here. Yes, and uh, actually there's, there's an important distinction to make here as well, mm. that the promised Messiah, um, because if you look at Emperor Babur and you know his descendants, we call them Mughals, because mm. that was a, a, f- a form of saying Mongols in, in ah, the, that language. Right, right. right. So um, the reason that they were referred to that is because obviously they're Mongol um, ancestry, Genghis Khan and everything. Uh, and the Prophet uh, he used to, his family was referred to as Mughals as well, right? He used right. to refer to himself as Mughal as well. But then it is, uh, there's a revelation that he received by God Almighty, which is published in Kitab al-Bariya, one of his books, one of the Prophet's books, where he's um, narrating this whole um He's essentially writing down his entire ancestry and the right. story behind it. So if anyone wants to look further, they can look into that book. Mm. And there he mentions that God Almighty has revealed that despite all historical records uh, stating that my family or my clan is a Mughal family, God Almighty has revealed to me that we are essentially Persian. We are Farsi or we have Persian descent. Right. So that is what yeah. um, I believe now. And if, if I'm not mistaken, Ian Adamson, a non-Muslim author, in his book, writes about the promised Messiah's ancestry from his own research. And he also comes to that same conclusion that yeah. they have descended from the Persian. Uh, so, so so the promised Messiah is a Mizaglam Ahmed uh, of Qadian, born in Qadian, as you stated. But the name of Qadian 
uh, has developed, has it not? It was not the original name there. Can you tell us uh, how that name was developed into Qadian and any relevance to the advent of the reformer? That's right. So when the Promised Messiah's ancestors settled in the area or village, which we now know as Qadian, mm. uh, at first it was the name that was given to that place was Islampur, right? Um, essentially meaning um, the city of Islam, right? right? And over the years, over the generations, because that was many generations ago, mind you, that was in the early 16th century, mm. um, maybe even the late 15th century, when they first settled that area. So over the generations, it became known as Islampur Qazi. Um, Qazi meaning um, an Islamic legal jurist or Jur- judge. Jewish type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And the reason for that was because the Prophet's ancestors were by law, um, given the title of Qazi by the emperors, the Mughal emperors uh, of the right. time of okay. their area, right? right? So that they were essentially the the judges of Islamic law yeah. within their area. Yeah, they carried out the legal activities of that uh, of the village or the people. Exactly. Yeah. And then it the name developed further into Islampur Qazi Maji because of the um, the farmland um, landscape around it, and it had lots of um, you know cows and bisons and stuff, and in in the Urdu or Hindi language, they're known as Maj, mm. and then Maji became part of that name as well. And then uh, it kept on evolving until Islampur and Maji um, were altogether dropped, and it just ended up as Qazi, and then Qazi eventually as Qadi, and then Qadian. That's okay. how it developed. So Qadian, essentially, the link it has, the reason that's important mm. why it's called Qadian, right, which obviously roots back to Qazi, right. the Islamic judge, yes. is because the promised Messiah, regarding the promised Messiah, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mentioned that the promised Messiah would be Hakam and Adil. He would be the one who would essentially judge what is right and what is mm. wrong. Um, you know, he would get rid of superstitions and wrong understanding, understandings and interpretations of Islam, and he would um, establish what's what's right. Very interesting how the name itself has developed to become the very thing that the Prophet Messiah would become, the judge and the the one who's just uh, as well. Yes. And also that his family's heritage actually created that name. Exactly. Because of what they were. Exactly. And they were the people who carried out justice and, as well. So actually, that's very that's a very important uh, uh, information to have. Yeah. Uh, in in order for. Uh, people to know that if the promised Messiah claims who he is, then that history is very relevant to that. Exactly. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, are there any prophecies or signs where the Mahdi would descend? Yes, so the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated in a, a narration, um, So, um, um, it states, this is in Sahih Muslim, mm. another collection of um, a hadith of narrations of the Holy Prophet. So essentially what it's saying is that when uh, Jesus, son of Mary, descends, right, when he's um, uh, divinely appointed, then he will descend on a white minaret mm. to the east, in the east of Dam- Damascus. And that's the main part that we need to focus on, the east of Damascus. That's where essentially he'll um, descend. And there's there's a lot of explanations and interpretations as to what exactly that place was and why that was referred to as the east of Damascus as well. But right. that's that's the crux of it. That's the crux of it. Just a clarification. Uh, we talk about the reformer, the one who will bring reform people back. The Holy Prophet put the hand of Sulman Farsi. 
And we also talk about the coming of Isa, the promised Messiah. Are these two separate individuals? So we find two terms. This is what we hear from some clerics. Yes. Right? Yeah. What is the Amdiya point of view on that? And uh, if you can give uh, some background to it. Right. So as you mentioned, the the mainstream or orthodox Muslims um, in this day and age, they believe that there are two separate beings or humans that are prophesied to come in the latter days. One being the Imam Mahdi, Mm -hmm. um, the guided one. Um, and the other being the Messiah or the Messiah in the form of Jesus, son of Mary. Mm. Now, they believe, due to certain traditions and ahadith, that those two people would be separate people. Um, But we actually, through careful study of the literature, have come to the conclusion that the Messiah and the Mahdi are the same person. The persons being referred to are Mm. one and the same the reason for that is because, for example, we have a hadith in uh, Ibn Majah where um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated, Lal Mahdi illa Isa, that there is no Mahdi except for Isa. Hmm. Right? So that's that's pretty clear cut anyway. Hmm. But and then, Ibn Majah is a very authentic book of. Uh, exactly. It's one of the six authentic yeah. books of a hadith yeah. that um, almost every Muslim hmm. uh, accepts as being authentic. And, that, um, and then there's another hadith. Which is in Bukhari, which states, um, that what will your condition be when Jesus, son of Mary, descends amongst you and he will be an Imam or he will be from amongst you, right? Mm. So, putting those two narrations together, we come to the conclusion that because it was supposed the Imam was supposed to be from amongst. The Muslim Ummah. And, and, and the verse also says that, uh, and among others, from among them. Yes. So stating that it will be among from within themselves. Minhum, exactly. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. So we come to the conclusion that the Mahdi and the Messiah, they're both one and the same people. Mm. Uh, so when we talk about the coming of the Reformer or the coming of the second Messiah, the, it will be the same individual. Yes. Carrying out different duties and roles. He will carry out... So, for example, we find in a hadith where um, it's stated about the Mahdi, separate, uh, a separate mention of the Mahdi, is that he will come and he will you know, carry out his duties and then he will lead the Muslims in prayer. Mm-hmm. And during that time, Isa will descend, the Masih will descend, mm-hmm. and he will join that congregation. Right. right? Now, um, on the face and, of it... And, and this uh, this is often quoted by the Muslim cleric, so it's very authentic. Yes. And, and they say, But their interpretation is slightly different. Exactly. So yeah. carry on with The your, authenticity yeah. is not in question. The interpretation is in question here. Mm. Uh, because they believe that, yeah, so that's clear-cut. It says the Mahdi will come first and then the Messiah will arrive. Mm. But what we understand from this is that the Mahdi, it, all this means is that the person, whoever will fulfill the prophecy of being these two people, first he will be the Mahdi. First he will claim to be the Mahdi and fulfill those duties mm-hmm. and then um, he will be given the rank of Messiah afterwards and that's what we see with the claim of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him that first he claimed to be a Mujaddid, a reformer, then he claimed to be a Mahdi, the Mahdi, Imam mm-hmm. Mahdi and only after that uh, did God Almighty reveal to him that he is in fact the promised Messiah. Right. And one of the things with the, Mah- the, the meaning of the Mahdi is one who obtains Guidance, guidance and gives it to others. So yes. he gives guidance. And the, the role of a Messiah is to reform the people who are already there. So there are two different sort of responsibilities and are combined into this second coming. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Jesus was a Messiah to the Jews, so he came to reform them. Yeah. Um, 
but the the Messiah of the the Holy Prophet would also carry to reform and also to guide. Yes, exactly. Do both. Okay. Uh, and the hadith about that the Messiah will descend in Damascus. Uh, but the promised Messiah, he just he came in Kadian. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you explain that? So it seems like a contradiction at first, mm. right? But a very clear-cut and straightforward um, explanation to that is that, um, firstly, if we look at the the world map, right, we see that if you draw a line from Damascus directly to towards the east, mm-hmm. right, a straight line, mm. um, it reaches Qadian, right? Qadian uh-huh. is exactly to the east of Damascus. In a straight line, yeah? Yeah, in a straight in line. A, in a horizontal line. Literally, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. So that's one important point to remember. The second important point is, because then, you know, the natural question arises, why did the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mention Damascus specifically, mm. right? Why didn't he just say Qadian? The reason Damascus was mentioned, because we have to look at the mission of the Messiah. The mission mm. of the Messiah, one of the things that he would do, he, he was going to do many things. Yaqtul al-Khanzir, he was going to kill the swine. Um, Harb, he was going to stop religious wars. But one of the main things he was going to do was Yaqsir al-Salid, that he was going to destroy the cross. Mm. And what does that mean? He was going to destroy the whole concept of... Of the crucifixion, which is what Christianity, Christianity is based Literally. on. Because St. Paul says, uh, had Christ not risen... Yep. I, from the cross, yep. our faith is in vain. Yep. So the whole crux has been based by St. Paul on that philosophy. So he would come and break the cross, meaning he would break that theory of the cross, not that he would break a cross in wherever he might see one. Exactly. And it's interesting you mentioned St. Paul because that's where I was leading this point to. Ah. That, and this is the promised Messiah, um, has made this point in his book, Fountain of Christianity, actually. Mm. Um, and he states that because of the fact that St. Paul, who actually during Jesus' lifetime, was his staunch enemy. Absolutely, he was, yes. Um, He was a Jew and he was his enemy, right? And he was very much with the Romans because he he was recognized then with the Romans. Exactly. But after Hazrat Isa passed away, um, St. Paul, due to personal interests, he pretended that he had a vision on the road to Damascus, right? And that is where Ah. the concept of the Trinity Mm. was born, Mm. right? So because Trinity itself... Um, the birthplace of Trinity was Damascus, right? With St. Paul having that um, vision. so-called vision, mm. right? That's why... It might have been a vision, but he might have misinterpreted what that vision was. It could have been, yes. Yeah. 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 So, But that's why the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mentioned that Masih would come to the east of Damascus mm. because one of the tasks of the Masih was to break the cross. And how do you break the cross? By breaking the concept of the Trinity. Of the Trinity. And, and the Hadith talks about that the, the, the Messiah will descend in Damascus or east of Damascus? Because sometimes uh, you see these two different... Uh, narrations of this hadith. Yes. Which is the truer one? So it's a very n- nuanced and subtle um, difference, but it the hadith mentioned east of Damascus, right? So east of Damascus can mean, it can mean east Damascus, but it can also mean east of Damascus, right? right Towards right, the east right, side right, right. Um, of Damascus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with what explanation you've just given about the foundation of uh, Trinity being in Damascus due to St. Paul, yeah. uh, this now makes more sense, that it means that east of Damascus it makes more sense. Yes. That uh, it, it, it ties in with, with, the dis- with the destruction of 
the concept of Christianity, yes. not that Christianity will be destroyed in the sense of physical yeah. destruction, but yeah. the spiritual destruction. Yeah, the, the destruction of the base theology, yeah. essentially. And if you look at that hadith that you were talking about, that when the Messiah comes, he will break the cross, he will kill the swine, and he will stop wars, it can't be taken as a literal. Of course. It doesn't make sense because yeah. how can he go around and kill every single swine then? Yeah. And, uh, there, will there be no pigs in the world? Yeah, and it doesn't behove a prophet of God to go around killing. Killing. Pigs, right? He's got more important things to do yeah. than just killing the, or or breaking crosses. Breaking crosses to yeah. prove that Christianity is wrong. That in itself does not prove anything. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But if you break the theory of it, the theology of it, yeah. it certainly does. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. So this gives us a good background now, uh, Daniel, um, to our future shows. Because now we know that the the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this reformer, would take place from someone from uh, the Persian background, and in line with the Quranic verse that we played, where the Holy Prophet put his hand on Salman Farsi and, and, and quoted this, and and the other hadiths related to it, gives clear evidence that the promised Messiah's claim to be of Persian descent is there. And what he's claiming to be seems to fit in with the Hadith if you take Hadith uh, metaphorically and the spirituality behind them rather than to take them literally. Right. I, I find a lot of faiths, and we're coming up to the level, I find a lot of faiths sometimes get caught up in the literal meanings of things and then have to come to all sorts of unusual beliefs after that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, we don't, the reason we take some things to be metaphorical is because we don't compromise or contradict the Holy Quran. Correct. Correct. And God's law. Indeed. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. We're coming up to the 11 o'clock news and then inshallah we'll be joining with Mehmet Ondasa from Turkey. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam, the Weekend World Show with Asan Amdi. Uh, anyone wishing to share their stories, please ring us on 0208. 6877878 or tweet us at voice of islam uk uh, right uh, daniel uh, thank you very much for the insight on the background of uh, the founder of the Indian muslim community as a mr glav ahmed may peace be upon him uh, we're now coming to our next uh, segment of the show which is community news weekend world community news uh, daniel um the Sky News have reported that Turkey, Syria earthquake death tolls expected to more than double, says UN aid chief. Uh, the death toll of the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria is likely to more than double, a UN chief has told Sky News. More than 250,000 people are known to have died after the 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck on Monday with multiple aftershocks. Speaking from the quake-hit city of Adana, in Turkey, Martin Griffith said that, the expected, that he expected tens of thousands more deaths to be confirmed. What else do they say? Right, so Mr. Griffiths, the UN's emergency relief coordinator, said, I think it is difficult to estimate precisely as we need to get under the rubble, but I'm sure it will double or more. That's terrifying. This, this is nature striking back in a really harsh way. He added, it's deeply shocking, the idea that these mountains of rubble still hold people, some of them still alive. We haven't really begun to count the number of dead. 
Yes, and uh, just a short clip of uh, what uh, one of the agencies, NGOs, is doing in Turkey. This is from Humanity First. Hi everyone, my name is Bashir. Uh, I'm from the UK. I'm here from, with a three-country assessment team from Humanity First. Uh, we've got we've got colleagues from Germany, Turkey, uh, and the UK, and we're here to do a, a quick, a rapid assessment to see where the most acute need is. Um, the purpose of what I'm doing is to keep um, our donors updated on, and, our, and, our, and our supporters updated on, on what we're doing. So please fo uh, follow me uh, and Humanity First to see what we're doing here. Thanks. Uh, that was Bashir from Humanity First. Humanity First is an organization where there is no uh, anyone who earns a wage and all the money donated to Humanity First goes directly to the aid itself. Joining us live from Istanbul where he's leading a rescue program is Mehmet Onda. Mehmet is uh, previously the Amir of the Turkish Amdiya Muslim community and now lead coordinator of the Humanity First, the charity arm of the Amdiya Muslim Association. Good morning, or more like good afternoon, Mehmet Sahib. Oh, I think the line may have got cut off. We were, we're going to try to rejoin Mehmet uh, there. I think because of uh, the situation there, and the distances, we might have some technical issues, but uh, our technical team is desperately trying to uh, connect them. But Daniel, this uh, devastation in uh, Turkey has been uh, quite uh, very severe and uh, very hard to watch. It's very tragic. Um, I was just checking, I think the latest update from about three hours ago of the death toll is that it's past 29,000 people. And mm. um, that's already a tragic number by itself. But if we are to... Um, you know, uh, believe the estimate by the UN mm. that it will double or more, then, you know, God only knows how many people uh, have ended up passing away from this. Yeah. Uh, let's try if we can get hold of Mammoth uh, Onder. Uh, Mammoth, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Uh, ever so sorry about the technicalities. I think there could be connection issues. So if you do cut off, we'll try again. But thank you so much for joining in this heart-rendering situation. Tell me, um, how is uh, this disaster impacting the Turkish people? I, I, can, I, cannot, I can't imagine the, the toll this is having on the Turkish people. Uh, Asan, uh, first of all, I must say um, that this disaster will not, or this disaster's uh, unfavorable results mm. will not be limited only with Turkey. Right. Because this is, uh, as many says, a disaster of the century. And there has been nothing, nothing like that ever before. Mm. I mean... Whatever we classify as earthquake and disaster, uh, I would say that it is not comparable to what is happening right now there uh, in southeast Turkey. Yeah. And uh, big devastation, uh, big losses, not only losses, uh, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, cars, buildings, uh, industrial sites, etc. Uh, most important losses are people. Uh, as you were mentioning, the death toll, it is uh, climbing up. The numbers will be climbing up. Um, obviously, we are still searching for life. Uh, but 
when it will be time uh, to give up about searching for the living people, mm. then the next step will be just going into the wreckages and try to find out uh, the dead bodies, and that will suddenly increase the number of dead toll. Um, I don't know. I mean, now we are talking about 25,000 official numbers because there are numbers flying out. I mean, everybody is making uh, uh, an educated estimate of uh, death toll and say this is the death toll. Everybody is getting these numbers from their representatives in the field. Mm. But uh, the government is very cautious about uh, whatever they recover uh, in terms of dead bodies and injured people, mm. uh, they report that as dead toll. And uh, those uh, who are still uh, uh, not uh, reached, uh, we cannot uh, immediately say they are dead because some of the people, they managed to escape the area right away. Right. And it is important that uh, all these accounts are put together. But I, I, I personally mm. believe that we, we will not end up having less than 35,000, 40,000, maybe even more people uh, as the final uh, uh, calculation will show us. Inshallah, not that much, but it is, it is going very, very very quickly to that direction. Indeed, and uh, we were quoting uh, Martin Griffiths, uh, the UN Emergencies Relief Coordinator, who fears that uh, at the time he was speaking, there was around 25,000 confirmed deaths. He was thinking, he was talking about the number probably being doubled, which is nearer 50,000. I mean, that sort of devastation we had in Pakistan, the floods and the uh, UN General Secretary Guterres said that uh, that was a, a flood or, on, on steroids. This exceeds even that. I mean, it is unimaginable. And you've just painted a picture, which unfortunately I, I've not picked up from watching the TV from what you have just said, that this is of utter devastation, which no, we have never seen in our lives. How how are the Turkish people coping and what sort of things? I, th- I believe you've been there helping as well, have you not? Yes. Uh, in fact, we have the uh, underground uh, an assessment team and as of today, also uh, a team of uh, more permanent help uh, from the Humanity First International, mm-hmm. that is a combination of Humanity First Germany and then also Humanity First UK. And uh, we are expecting that teams uh, will come from Humanity First USA and Canada. And basically, this whole issue is uh, uh, not only for humanity first, but for all the NGOs around the world, and uh, a very uh, important test how well they are prepared to actually serve mankind. Mm. And uh, what I see uh, being on the field, I have, uh, I unfortunately could not visit all the areas of earthquake because this is a very huge it's a huge interland. Yes. Just just imagine uh, if you 
if you just want to um, uh, see the size of the area affected, uh, one can say it is about 80% of Germany. Wow. So uh, that is that is something that I can give you how big the scale uh, of the area uh, is. Mm. And uh, we are talking about a population of 13.5 million wow. living in the area with at least three major cities having uh, roughly a population of more than 1.5 million each. And then uh, it is an area uh, which is very much in the uh, close proximity, uh, close proximity to the uh, southern borders of Turkey, uh, mostly the Syrian border, because we also have this earthquakes as an aftermath, quite a bit of that toll. This most of the people and international press is nowadays starting to talk about. There is a big devastation in the cities of Syria, like Aleppo, and some northern cities. There, the death toll, the numbers are quite difficult to trace, but they are talking at least to have uh, at least to have uh, 5000 people uh, as that toll and many injuries and there none of the ngos only a few i i, I have read that uh, uh, from britain side mm-hmm. uh, uh, help uh, was offered through un they were i believe they seem to be the first entering this territory but that territory, compared to Turkey, is an untouched area. Uh, um, and let me uh, yes. give the answer to your question. What we have observed here in Turkey, yeah. I'm a Turkish citizen. Yeah. I, I, people may find me a, a bit biased, but this is uh, based upon the representatives of UK and Germany. We have not seen any panic we have not seen any chaos. We have not seen people fighting each other, uh, trying to have an access, uh, just jumping onto each other, uh, just to get the helps, etc. Mm. People are very calmly, very much obeying, and uh, and then the Turkish Afat. I mean, I am proud. They have been doing a very good job in terms of organizing all the NGOs, all the supplies, all the health material reaching to the affected areas and giving uh, all the NGOs possibilities to, uh, I mean, operate in the field. So uh, I must say uh, this is a big uh, scale health organization nothing like that has ever happened before indeed but so far i see uh, there everybody is doing their best and uh, also the people uh, in the area uh, government has given them a special opportunity so uh, famous cities out of turkey like izmir yes. like aydın and Aydın is famous with the uh, resort area Kuşadası, yeah, then areas, Mula, yeah. 
Yeah. Mola is uh, famous with uh, Bodrum and Marmaris and Fethiye. Okay. Uh, as a summer holiday destination, it is well known places. Yes, and correct. Antalya. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All, all these all, cities, all holiday resorts, yes. All these cities with their immense capacity of hotels yeah. are put at the service of those who would like to leave their areas temporarily yeah. Yeah. during the uh, during this uh, difficult days. Yeah. And all those hotels are put at their service at no cost. And even transport is provided by the government. Right. So there is a big evacuation right now that um, people can have a uh, relief, have a uh, peace of mind. Mm. Uh, they can just recover the the bad effects of the, uh, the disaster. Yeah. And uh, those who lost uh, homes, uh, they have a proper uh, residence. Uh, for uh, a while yes. uh, until uh, the government uh, can clear them the way mm. uh, that they can come back. And we know from the past experiences the Turkish government is also very fast in terms of uh, building new buildings, uh, safer buildings, and distributing them almost at no cost mm. uh, to those who lost their property. Indeed. So. I mean, this is the picture that I can give you. Uh, it is only one side of the whole issue. But uh, if there is any other question that you would like to ask... I'm going to say, you, you, you're talking about the great effort that the government and President Erdogan's government is doing in, in, in uh, they have to help the others. Uh, we started off with a quote from Charles Dickens, this program today. No one is useless in this world who lightens the burdens of another. Uh, and, and that is very much what the government and the people of Turkey are doing for their fellow uh, people. And, and this, this death toll is not just the people died, it's the people related to them, the relatives and the friends. They are all being affected and the whole nation is being affected. And from your words, it seems that the government and President Erdogan are doing, trying to do the best they can in this major disaster. Some of the Western media were trying to point out some criticisms of uh, Erdogan, but I recall when the Glenfall Tower fire took place, and that was just one single building that caught fire, there was great criticism of the government because of the lack of the fire brigade, the lack of support from the government, and still they haven't resolved those issues. And this is a, a thousand times bigger than what Glenfall is, if, if not more. Uh, so it just shows you that any criticism of Erdogan or the president or the people of Turkey is uh, non uh, uh, is baseless, and the efforts that are being put, as you have said, is absolutely fantastic. Now, in terms of uh, the work that is being done and the work that is needed, what sort of things are required to help the people of Turkey and Syria? Yeah, before getting into this, uh, I would like to say I am, uh, you know me also for some time, I am not a politician and I don't like politics a lot. I mean, politics is part of our uh, today's life. Mm. And um, I am against this issue that people use this uh, as an opportunity to impose 
some personal views to others because something has happened which is exceptional, yeah. which is exceptionally disastrous, which is exceptionally fatal, and they are just trying to, you know, uh, make the bill to just one guy because yeah. they don't like him, yeah. not since yesterday. They don't like him since years hmm. because he is not a Mr. Yes yeah. to the Western world. Yeah. And uh, he has given a, a, a new direction to the nation and to the Republic of Turkey. Mm. Um, you know, I always and I always will keep giving this uh, as a scale of evaluation, yes. which is from the Holy Quran, where Allah Almighty says that when they ask the Holy Prophet about drinking and this fortune telling issues, mm. you know, in the verse, I will not repeat yes, it in, in detail. Dr drinking, Allah gambling, gives, and uh, divining errors. Yes. yes. Exactly. Uh, so uh, Allah says there might be a few benefits, mm. but the harm is bigger. Correct. You know, this is my scale. Since I have ever read this verse of from Allah Almighty, so I always look to the picture and try to see and understand if there is benefit more than harm, then I stick to it. Mm. If harm is bigger than benefit, mm. I stay away, away from, from it. it. Yeah. And this, is, this should be actually the scale of every human uh, nature mm. because only this way, because there is no such thing that anybody is perfect. There is no such thing that any human-made system is perfect. Absolutely. And there is no such thing that any government on this world claiming to be the most liberal, most uh, democratic, most uh, human-oriented one mm. to be the one is perfect. We have seen when democracy has ended, when it distracted with the benefits of the Western nations. We have seen where um, uh, helping mankind suddenly stopped when it distracts with the benefits of the people. You know, today, yeah. if we are such people, why nobody is helping northern Syria? Or why they are not running to northern Syria? Mm. Why UN is not calling for an emergency state for your, uh, northern Syria? There are people dying there too. Politics has taken over yeah. humanity. Exactly. Which is sad, so, and, and it's something I'm going to address with uh, um, uh, with an MP who's going to be joining me after your interview, and I'll be yeah. asking him that I question. Am, I am. I don't feel myself very qualified to discuss about this matter. I am a uh, standard, ordinary citizen mm. of Turkey. Mm. I love my country and I love my people. This is why I have been to the uh, area of earthquake and 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 only uh, I must mention this. Uh, uh, Humanity First, as an institution with its limited capacities, mm. it is trying to do miracles. 
it is trying to show an existence of um, uh, humanitarian relief and just it is only a small portion it is maybe insignificant among all the things taking place right now in this area but only these individual drops yes. when brought together can make a big uh, sum of uh, international miracle which will help turkey to recover so as they say that's... today i see one one more thing today no, no, i see yeah. that uh, yeah carry on yeah uh, today i see the greek uh, foreign affairs minister visiting turkey mm. yeah this the same guy guy uh, using every opportunity to complain about turkey and turkish government yeah today uh, with his human side and he, with he, his he's, he's uh, put the politics to one side yes exactly yeah, and so this, therefore, is yeah. this is my point set the politics aside today is not the right day to discuss about politics today is the right day to discuss about humanity today is the right day to help people yes today is not the right day to discuss uh, if uh, erdogan or uh, mr biden or uh, mr sunak or anybody mm. is good or bad this is not today no i remember uh, when 911 happened this is exactly what the american government was pleading that you're either on our side or the side of evil and today you, you know, if you are not helping the people who are suffering then you're not on the side of humanity should we remember the saying of uh, azad mirza gulam ahmed qadiani mm. so when uh, peace be upon him when he said that none of you living in europe in asia or those living on the island none of you are safe so this shows one more time yes none of us on this world are safe from calamities mm. and calamities disasters are taking place more than ever before you yes. know what i have seen on the streets of adana mm. I have seen us. Christian missionaries. Yeah. Yeah, Christian missionaries. Yeah. On the second day of the disaster, they came there knocking every door of the uh, Adana people, Turkish people, mm. and saying this is because of you have worshiped the wrong thing. Oh dear. You know, they were saying exactly this mm. and they have even stopped us thinking that we are from the west. <laughs> and when he understood that we are muslim he said oh you are mischief people it is because of you that these disasters are taking place heaven help us if if, uh, you if know, people are people are, like people are un- under these circumstances people are still thinking that you know they propagandate their ideas their beliefs and such things mm. instead of helping helping people yeah the creator yeah. of uh, the god almighty okay and and in that regard uh, mamat as my last question to you and and you pointed me in the right direction about helping people what can message can we give to our listeners to our communities to our friends 
to our politicians? Uh, what message can we give them and how can we help the Turkish people? There is a, a quite well and reliable central organization of Turkey. We as Humanity First, I am a member of the Humanity First relief team, we are coordinating and cooperating with the local government and local disaster management system. And we have started operating uh, to provide help medically with our doctors uh, on the field uh, at two locations close to the epicenter of the earthquakes and uh, then uh, also uh, in an area uh, of Hatay. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to expand our efforts more uh, it is important that you do your helps in a coordinated, organized manner uh, and trust the system. The system is working fine. The system tells you what is needed. If it is needed, for example, now they are in need of tents, in need of blankets, because people are now uh, obviously reluctant, those who even have uh, uh, a place to live. They are reluctant to go inside. Mm. So uh, they need food. We are providing also food. We will provide uh, food uh, toward, uh, for the victims. So in a similar manner, every single NGO is working uh, like that. Trust and help through an organized way. Don't panic. There is no need anymore to panic. There is more need for prayers and more need for help. Also, you can help Humanity First through its official channels. Right. And um, rest assured, it will be used for the good of the victims there. And uh, that is the only thing that I can ask people to do. Take action. Do your uh, responsibility because you never know if this will happen to you sometime in the future. Indeed. None of us are secured from that. And, and you reminded us of the promised Messiah's words on this as well, that no one in the West is safe from uh, disasters or from uh, trials of God Almighty. Uh, Mehmet Onder, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and uh, Painting a picture of what is certainly the biggest disaster of our lifetimes and for, for, for many a generation. Uh, and our prayers, really, for the people of uh, Turkey and for Syria. Um, may Allah uh, give relief to you all and uh, bless you for the efforts that you are putting. As you said, that little drops will make large oceans. Every little bit of help will indeed... Um, help towards a little bit towards each and every person that is suffering in Turkey at the moment. Inshallah. Jazakallah once again for joining us. Jazakallah. Very moving, Daniel. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I was quite moved by that interview. And a very fair point that um, I think due attention towards northern Syria is not given in the main headlines. But we should also keep them in our prayers, the indeed, Syrians. Indeed. The first few days, there was no news about Syria. And, and death tolls were rising there already. Um, uh, it's only now that some help is going there and, and some coverage is being given to them. 
And, and he's right, Mehmet, in saying that uh, politics at times needs to be put aside. Mm. Just serving humanity yeah. has to have priority. Absolutely. Um, something that we're hoping to put to our next guest, uh, but I think we're not quite ready with the... with that so we're going to take a little short break while we technically try to get hold of uh, our next guest to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam. Uh, sorry for that technical hitch. We were trying to get hold of our next uh, uh, guest, which is uh, Henry Smith, uh, the MP for Crawley. Good morning, Henry. Hello, good morning. Can good morning. Yeah, sorry about the delay, Henry. We had a little technical issue. Um, no problem. And we were also talking to someone in Turkey who was uh, helping on the front lines there and uh, one of the members of the Amdi Muslim community uh, who lives in Turkey. And uh, so very interesting interview we had with him. Very moving. No, very, good. very, very moving interview, by the way. I can uh, imagine. Yeah, and uh, the works that they're doing and the efforts of the people of Turkey is quite immense, as he was pointing out, that every single individual is helping out. But this devastation in the Turkish and Syrian borders yeah. is a disaster we have not seen. And watching the horrors on TV, uh, just, just to imagine what people are going through, what are your initial thoughts on what's happening there? Well, it is just um, horrendous, the scenes that we are seeing from Turkey and also, as you correctly say, from northern Syria as well, where the devastation um, has been uh, just as bad and uh, very distressing, obviously, to see, particularly, I think, children um, and old people affected. Of course, the earthquake occurred in the early hours of Monday morning. Hmm. Uh, So most people would have been uh, inside in their beds. And uh, therefore, I think that's why we're seeing... Uh, just a, a horrendous death toll um, of of many tens of thousands of people. So it's uh, it's it's heartbreaking to see. Indeed, and and for a disaster like this, as particularly as you pointed out, that it happened early hours of the morning when everyone would have been at home asleep, unable to react to what's happening. Uh, when something like this happens. Uh, no one can, no government can be prepared for this. I mean, we had the Grenfell Towers, which was one single apartment block cutting fire. Seventy-two people died. The, secu- the, th- the fire brigade wasn't prepared fully for it. The government hadn't prepared for it. 
this is thousands and thousands times worse than what that is. So no one could ever be prepared for this. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to cope with such a disaster on um, such a massive scale uh, as a, a large earthquake of this magnitude, uh, affecting so many cities, so many villages uh, and towns uh, across two different countries. Uh, so it does overwhelm the emergency services. And I think that's why uh, it's important we've seen the response from the international community, including from uh, the United Kingdom, uh, to particularly, I think, the expertise in search and rescue uh, is very important uh, to still pull people uh, from the rubble. And, of course, we've, we've heard some uh, remarkable stories of people um, being buried for, for many days, uh, but subsequently being rescued by search and rescue. So that's, that's where the expertise, um, I think, is really, is really needed. Indeed. And what sort of help is uh, the government, uh, the UK government, uh, sending to help President Erdogan? and uh, President Bashar Assad uh, in this uh, toll rising. What sort of help is the government giving? Uh, well, the initial response was to send um, 77, 77 rescue uh, teams uh, to Turkey, uh, and also uh, now a field hospital has been established to help treat um, injuries um, of those affected. With regard to Syria, that is more tricky because, of course, um, many countries around the world um, don't have diplomatic relations uh, with the um, Assad government uh, in Damascus, and therefore um, £800,000 worth of support has been delivered to the White Helmets in northern Syria, uh, the civil defence force there uh, that is internationally uh, recognised to try and help people in cities like Aleppo and elsewhere, um, which already, of course, have put from years... Oh, we seem to be losing you, Henry. Oh, uh, I think we've uh, lost Henry. He could be mobile. Uh, Henry, can you hear us? No. Uh, unfortunate, Daniel, that we've lost uh, Henry Smith. Uh, we'll still try to keep... We're trying to reconnect with him. Um, uh, but uh, he's saying that uh, £800,000 have been sent to Syria... Uh, but much more help in Turkey. Uh, obviously, Turkey is uh, the greater disaster zone. But 800,000 doesn't seem much. It doesn't at all. I mean, um, looking at the map of the earthquake, of course, um, you know, Turkey has been hit much harder than Syria. Mm. But just like Turkey um, is populated by human beings, in the same manner, Syria is also populated by human beings. And often in these disaster situations, I think it's we about might the first have, response yeah. that truly matters. Is that, Henry, have we got you back? Uh, you have me back, yes. yes. Apologies. I think there must be uh, a problem with the signal. That's okay. That's not a problem at all. Uh, there's much more severe things happening in Turkey and Syria than our phone exactly. connection here. So, exactly. yeah. Uh, in terms of the aid given to to, to Syria, 800,000 seems very little. Um, is there more that the government is planning to do? Uh, yeah, that was the initial uh, response. Um, I'm not sure what uh, you heard before the line went. That was the initial 72-hour uh, response. Um, but okay. what complicates the issue um, in northern Syria uh, is that the assistant needs assistance is being delivered by the um, White Helmets, the Syrian Civil Defence uh, Force, um, because, of course, uh, many countries uh, don't have diplomatic relations uh, with uh, the Assad government in uh, Damascus. Uh, so 
it's important that cities like Aleppo that have already suffered years of uh, civil war, of course, and now natural disaster, um, are getting uh, the support that they need. That, of course, um, response to the situation in Turkey is important, but earthquakes, of course, no, no boundaries or borders um, mm. and um, uh, the, the the support for people in Syria is uh, is just as important yeah uh, we, we will play at the end of the interview the DEC message for support uh, for Turkey and Syria uh, so we will cover that a little bit later uh, just to move on slightly to uh, uh, a little bit uh, with a few minutes we've got on the persecution of the Amdi Muslim community. You're a member of the APPG, the Amdi Muslim All-Party Parliamentary Group for the Amdi Muslim Group. Uh, the, the continued persecution and the recent attacks on the mosque in Karachi with the authorities watching on, uh, lots of concerns uh, for the Muslim community. What, what can the APPG do and what can the UK government do to help alleviate uh, these blasphemy laws under which these attacks are made, particularly targeting Ahmadis in the laws that have been created? Well, I think the um, attacks on the Ahmadiyya community in Pakistan um, is uh, unacceptable. Uh, it's criminal as well and is something that I think uh, in the UK perhaps not many people are as aware as they could be. And therefore, I think the importance of the uh, Ahmadiyya community or party parliamentary group is for us MPs uh, across the political spectrum to be able to highlight the persecution that is going on every day, essentially, um, in um, many parts of Pakistan and other parts of the world, mm. uh, and uh, that um, to, to shape British foreign policy um, towards those parts of the world uh, where that persecution is happening, but also, I think, to raise awareness um, here um, so that's no, uh, uh, you know, I think many people are unaware, and, mm. and it's yeah, we are struggling with the signal, Henry. I don't know if you can hear me still. No, we've, we've, we'll try one more time, uh, because there's one or two more couple of questions I wanted to check with Henry. Uh, but uh, the APPG, Dadiyat, has been very supportive of the Amdal Muslim community here in the UK. The several MPs are signed up. Uh, Henry Smith is one of those uh, who uh, was at the offset of the setting up of the APPG for the Amdal Muslim community. And he has always uh, very been supportive uh, in his constituency uh, in supporting the Amdi Muslim community. Uh, Henry, we got you back again. We'll try one more last time with you, Henry. We'll try, we'll try one last time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right that uh, a lot needs to be done in Pakistan, and we need the support of the of the MPs and the Parliament to support the Amdi Muslim community. But also, what is happening in India with the Muslim community is. Is, I mean, there's clear evidence that uh, Muslims are being targeted in India as well. And uh, a lot of this anti-Muslim sentiment which is growing in India is uh, sort of transferring into the UK where many uh, Hindu communities are supporting the Hindu government in what they are doing to Muslims in India. What, 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 uh, what is the view of the government in that respect? Well, it is a concern that disputes that are occurring in India or Pakistan are sometimes transferring to those uh, diaspora communities uh, that live here in the UK. Uh, of course, towards the end of last year, we saw some very worrying scenes in Leicester uh, where there were 
um, attacks made by both uh, the Muslim and Hindu community. Um, and uh, really, we need to express the importance of uh, religious tolerance, um, that uh, we may disagree with uh, somebody else's point of view, but that it's important uh, to respect that there are different faiths and different political points of view. Mm. And I think certainly, you know, in the community that we represent um, in Crawley, uh, the interfaith network is extremely strong, and we need to ensure uh, that um, people are not riled up by governments uh, into um, attacking minorities uh, where they uh, exist and uh, that actually people uh, come together and respect one another's right uh, to uh, practice their religion and their beliefs in the way that they, they want to. So it's, it's a very important principle uh, that I think um, Britain has uh, an important role in promoting uh, to India and many other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, there was a BBC documentary on Modi recently which uh, puts uh, Modi culpable for much of the atrocities in 2002, over 2,000 Muslims were killed. And when Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister, was asked this of your government, uh, he tried to sort of push it aside and uh, as if to say, no, 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 Modi's got nothing to do with it. But is he not trusting the BBC? Well, that documentary, I saw it myself. It was uh, very um, eye-opening. Um, I've been aware of many of the issues that it raised, but it mm. certainly highlighted um, others as well. Um, and uh, Modi is obviously a very controversial figure. He seems to be appealing to Hindu nationalism um, as a way to remain popular. Um, and the consequence of that is I think that uh, the civil rights of many minorities um, haven't been haven't been uh, protected and observed in the way that they uh, should have been. And, and Britain, obviously, with its um, history uh, with um, India, uh, I think um, needs to, to uh, continue to uh, raise these concerns uh, with the government uh, in New Delhi. Uh, and uh, that certainly, as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, which I am, mm. is something that we're, we're, we're thinking to do. Well, uh, we hope so, uh, uh, and we hope that uh, all the support that the British government does give to minorities uh, and the overspill of what happens in the subcontinent when, when sometimes spills over to Britain uh, can can be dangerous, and we need the support of our MPs and uh, our government to, to make sure that uh, through Britain we can influence those with extreme views. I, absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a, a strong historical and cultural link between Britain and, as you say, the Indian subcontinent. Um, a lot of family ties, a lot of commercial and business ties, political ties as well. Uh, and those need to be used to uh, engender uh, a more uh, peaceful um, uh, solution uh, rather than trying to pit one community against another. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Uh, Henry, thanks as ever for giving up your time and joining us and sharing your views. And well, uh, my apologies my apologies for the bad connection, but uh, hopefully next time it'll be clearer. No, no, these things can happen, so don't worry. So thank you very much once again. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Henry Smith, uh, Daniel. Um, the, the British government is is supportive, uh, but sometimes I think there were there, there were concerns about Rishi Sunak's denial of what Modi, what the BBC is implying that is that uh, is doing. Yes, uh, and certainly uh, their support for the Muslim community uh, through the APPG has been immensely uh, appreciated 
by the community and uh, we we are held very in high esteem by the uh, by the government in in Britain right okay right let's move to the last segment of our show uh, we're nearly to the end of our first uh, your first show uh, Daniel I hope uh, you've been enjoying this show but let's uh, so far so good so far so good <laughs> let's get uh, Shahid Khan to speak to us weekend world sports review assalamu alaikum shahid wa alaikum assalam uh, how are you sir i'm fine thank you return from your uh, holidays i see but uh, straight into the premiership some very interesting matches but it seems like var made the headlines again <laughs> <laughs> indeed i think yeah one could uh, argue one way or the other i think we can go ahead we can be going this until the cows come home really mm. about the var and the scene sometimes flabbergasts you and think that even with all this technology end of the day that we're still talking about the var rather than uh, the game itself so even sometimes you're talking about uh, just the hair's breadth and hair's uh, uh, difference uh, so that i think unfortunately is taking away Uh, from the real game itself it is i mean the var was supposed to take away all these debates we were having now we're debating <laughs> about var rather than <laughs> the decision making uh, so it hasn't really resolved human nature really is it the humans will always argue about this and the other indeed i think in some sports uh, the var or the uh, technologies help but and unfortunately yeah. in the case of football i think we're still long way to go i think i wonder why that is because you, when you watch hockey or tennis they as i mean tennis when when it started with its uh, uh i forgot the name of it and, and cricket as well you know it, it's it's been taken on board and it's it's part and parcel of the game with very few debates but football is just not there is it I think the fact that tennis is different let's not forget about the fact that it's not, it's not a contact sport like football is mm, mm. so and also I mean technology can be used to a certain extent in some cases I mean hockey as well there are there are instances where it is still impossible to say that the right decision was made by even by VAR have you looked at it a number of times mm, so mm. football has that and sometimes the sending off the offside and so forth Mm-hmm. uh they can be controversial and at the end of the day i think the referee has to do, uh, as long as it doesn't get the major ones wrong i feel that uh that's what technology should be used should in be. my opinion and of the two decisions yesterday the arsenal game and the west ham chelsea game <laughs> i think that the, the arsenal seemed to be the harder done by because there were two incidences uh which were clearly var pickable uh yeah and and yeah. and for some reason was not whereas the west ham handball you could argue whether it was intentional or one or the other absolutely oh. i agree yeah. i think that they were hard done by that decision i feel uh at the end of the day the score is there and that there it is yes and uh, your man kane he's breaking records isn't he indeed i mean the fact that he has been at tottenham for so long and not having one trophy even some of the tottenham supporters i think will agree for the fact that he's too good a player to be at tottenham let's put it that way losing mm, <laughs> 4-1 to leicester uh, yesterday wasn't good <laughs> indeed i mean apart from that losing to your team leicester uh, the fact <laughs> that uh, yeah the, the record they they i mean to be broken and obviously he's in that situation having I mean, overtaken jimmy greaves the great jimmy greaves mm. you know just for example mm. also for england uh, they are different kind of players no doubt about it but uh, in this modern era Uh, the goal scoring of uh, Harry Kane is something. I mean, he's an all-round player, not just a goal scorer. In some cases, you find the goal. Uh, Jimmy Greaves is one of those. He was a goal poacher more than a goal scorer. Yeah. And, 
and uh, Harry Kane's worth is much more than that to a team, not just for Tottenham, but also for England. Yeah, Harry Kane started as a out-and-out striker, but has developed his game to become more than that, uh, certainly. And he's got a lot more games in him, hasn't he? That's true. I mean, uh, the fact that there's talk about the fact that his supply is not there, that's why he has to drop back and things like that. Uh, But I think the way that he has been playing in recent times is the fact that he's become more of a provider and also the goals are just uh, icing on the cake, really. But uh, there you are, the records are there and he's actually proved himself. Indeed. And at the top, Arsenal still clear, but the two Manchester teams hot on their heels with uh, Newcastle not too far away either. Well, Arsenal had this wobble. I mean, they hadn't got a victory in the last three games, which is just a little wobble, as I say. Mm. And whilst Ateta is not saying that it's a matter of concern, but the big game is on Wednesday when they take on uh, Manchester City, the champions at the moment. And that, I think, could be a deciding factor in the league this year. Mm. Uh, at the moment, they're five points clear and Manchester City win today. Uh, they could cut, down, cut it down to two. So that could be a really a major factor in, in the season, I think, the big uh, match at uh, the Emirates on Wednesday. Yes, indeed. Um, and as uh, Southampton have sacked their manager, Nathan Jones, uh, another one to... to <laughs> well, you can't another... keep up with <laughs> the sacking. He's the eighth one to be in, in this season in this so season. far. Yeah. And, you know, just the poor guy's just been there three months. I mean, 14 games into a game. What can one do? I mean... Uh, the previous manager had been there for four years, and I think he hadn't done any worse than him, to be honest with you. And but uh, here you are, rock at rock bottom in the league, and I think that's he has to has to pay the price. And that's how football is at the moment. Premiership is uh, uh, at the most. Indeed. And tomorrow we've got Leeds struggling at the bottom and uh, near the bottom against Man United, who are now surging ahead and uh, in firm third position. Yeah, I think Dan Hag has done a fantastic job. I mean, the fact that I think uh, Christian Ronaldo's departure has done a lot towards that. My feeling is that the the uh, changing room is a lot more galvanised and the way that Rashford is playing is uh, phenomenal, to be honest with you. He's scoring in every game that you can think of. Mm. Uh, yeah, that game is at, at least today and I think they'll be really curious to win once again and surge on. Yeah, someone with a strong uh, personality like Ronaldo sometimes, when they come towards the end of their career, doesn't help the, <laughs> doesn't help the overall team and and the other players. So I think there was a strong decision to be made, just like Southgate made with Rooney when he took over England. Oh, indeed, absolutely. I mean, those kind of decisions are really defining moments, and I think that they, in case of Ronaldo, I think this has worked very well for them and. Uh, Wait, I mean, so the other game I think you might want to mention is the Everton Liverpool game, which is tomorrow night, in fact. Yes. And another big one for Liverpool at the moment that the way they've fallen off the hill for some reason, uh, something that yeah. Klopp even can't say what is the matter with them. So yeah. uh, that's another uh, derby in Liverpool that could actually be very, very uh, crucial. Only one win in five in the league, and then they've had the loss in the cup as well. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and Everton with that win last week against uh, the high-riding Arsenal team. Yeah. And Sean Dice, I mean, the fact that he's gone into and got a result like that just gives some other teams of, of thought about uh, sacking their managers. Mm. So and that might not be all go well too well for other teams at the bottom, for their, for their managers at least. Yeah. Another team to comment on and or, or how well they're doing is uh, Newcastle, isn't it? And, and, and even, uh, Newcastle. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Newcastle are one of the teams actually who haven't no, uh, unbeaten for the last five games. But then again, they've also had a wobble in that uh, one, the draw yesterday against Bournemouth. Mm. Uh, that was points dropped for them. But uh, yeah, they they actually have been surging, and I think they uh, hot favourites are going to be in one of the champions, one of the four positions that they would be able to get. That the season is too much between the fourth and fifth at the moment. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, the fact that. Uh, they are the, well. Let's not forget about even teams like Brentford and Brighton. They haven't. They are the, uh, have the best track record, record in the last five games, for instance. And so they they're not easy games. In as you've seen the results that we have been seeing recently. Uh, I keep mentioning the fact that Premiership is that kind of a game, and there's no team that you can say that you're going to be out and out winners or losers on the day. Yeah, well, you've got Liverpool in tenth position, Leicester ex Premiership winners in thirteenth position. It shows you how tough the Premiership can be sometimes. Even some of the players like West Ham, for instance, in 16th position, I mean, the players that they have, yeah. one would imagine them to be further up in the table. And like mentioned that uh, also the other teams that you mentioned, I mean, they are real winners in that sense. And mm. so uh, some managers are turning it around while others are having much more difficult time. Indeed. Thank you very much, Shahid, for sharing your thoughts and views. And we'll catch up with you in two weeks' time. Inshallah. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Right, Daniel, thank you very much for uh, co-hosting this morning. You did a brilliant job. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I hope uh, that we we'll get you into the mold of uh, being our regular presenter soon, and uh, we we'll look forward to the next show. We will we'll be back, and thank you to our guest speakers, uh, Henry Smith, Mammoth Onder, particularly from Turkey, yeah. Azhar Amdi, and uh, Shahid Khan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. This is Asan Amdi closing with Voice of Islam.